0: And I began to talk about this. And I, I tell you what, beloved, I don't know that I'll finish this sermon this morning because there's so much here. Um, I just know it's going to take a minute. So if I say, oh, all right, let's pray. And it's not complete, that's why. We as a body have been meeting for 10 years in a few weeks and all of us who are from the beginning have always said the Lord has brought us together and the word of God teaches us that our covenant is stronger than trials our covenant is stronger than fears our covenant is stronger than blood God has his way and his purposes even when they are not what we want to not thank him for them is blasphemy and that's what our that's what our flesh does and i'll say that in all the years of my ministry experiences this has been one of the best 10 years of my life it's been amazing It's been hard, and it's yet to become easy. God has seen us through literally hell at our doorstep. God has seen us through brothers and sisters who have decided to go their own way, and to sin, and to refuse love, to refuse correction, to refuse intimacy. And these things keep me up at night. These things destroy my body. These things bother my brain. These things wreck the intimacy of my own household. These things disorder the function of my ability to think and pray and live. Sometimes I wonder how Moses stood it. And we who are parents, we know what it's like, right? How Moses stood it. Moses didn't stand it. Christ stood for him. And that is what brings us together, the standing of Christ, the foundation of who He is. He is the God of all things, and now He is the God-man who has satisfied God's wrath for us. So when we stand fast, it is because we are sitting still on the bedrock of our hope. Now through the years, I've been taught by a lot of men ministry stuff, okay, Ministry stuff. And I remember some of my first few weeks in ministry, you're taken aside and they say, okay, young man, you know, full of God and zeal and talent. they're thinking, this guy's going to make me famous. But it was always infamy that came. (laughs) Always infamy. Not because of things that I did or things that I said, but because of Christ alone. And I've always wondered, and I've been taught, this is what a pastor's supposed to do. This is what a pastor's supposed to be. You hear people say that. And I'm a note taker. I take notes. I take notes every single day of my life. I write down everything that I think, everything that I've heard, everything that I've been experiencing, and everything in and out of it. And and, beloved, when I die, I pray those files never see the light of day. And I'll tell you, there's one thing that's remained constant. There's several things that have remained constant in my ministry, in my life as a pastor. Let's put it that way. I'm a sinner, and Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Those have remained constant. And the same is true for the rest of the body. We are all sinners, and Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And there have been a lot of things that I've been taught through the years about how to do ministry that have been absolutely wrong. The good news is is that God has been patient and has taught me, as well as some of you, that His Word is sufficient. That means that what He prescribes is absolutely enough. Now, you have heard me say these things nearly every Lord's Day for ten years. And what am I saying? The same thing I've been saying. Read your Bible, study your Bible, learn your Bible. Read the Scripture. Read what God is saying to His people. That way when our conversations are about theological things, it is the Scripture that we're talking about, not anyone else's ideologies. That way, when we come to the word, beloved, you won't believe how many hate mails I get in a a weekly basis online. Imagine waking up every Monday morning with 5 to 10 emails from people that you know in the world telling you that you are a godless, wicked devil. And not only have they said that to you, they've said that to a hundred other people. Imagine receiving in the mail a letter from a saint in the body from a beloved church member who says, the worst thing we ever did was to call you as our pastor. Imagine receiving a handwritten note in the offering plate. We don't pass an offering plate, probably for this reason. (laughs) It's PTSD. PTSD. And it's saying, I should call the authorities, you are an abusive manipulator. And this is the record. And I keep those Why do I keep those things? Why do I store that stuff? I don't know. It's not just started, it's been that way my entire life. And beloved, if you have any exposure to a large number of people, you also, if you just stand on the simplicity of grace and the simplicity of the authority of God's Word alone, you will get these same problems. The more people we minister to, the messier the pen. The more sheep in the pen, the messier it is. When we first got married, we had a cat. And then a couple of months later, we had another cat. And then some months after that, we had 10 cats. You can't let 10 cats live in your house. You can't put 10 cats in a cardboard box. That's nasty. It's a mess. It's not easy to keep clean. Now, I've got a buddy down the road who has a couple of hundred sheep. And they're nasty. (laughs) There's a reason that the Lord chose sheep as the image of the believer. Because they're dumb animals. They run and go places based on fear. The way you get them where you want them to go is you put a dog behind them. Scare them where you want them to go. We're dumb, scared, and nasty. We can't fend for ourselves, feed ourselves, shear ourselves, clean ourselves, worm ourselves, or even give birth ourselves. For the grammaticians, just ignore that. We're sheep. But the one good thing is, is that there is only one true shepherd. There is only one true shepherd. And that is Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And the shepherds of God's church hold to Jesus Christ, our righteousness, and His Word. And when we depart from that with our thinking, we are wicked. When we depart from that in our teaching, we have gone astray. When we try to impose burdens of things on top of other people based on assumption, we are not doing our job. What is the job of an elder? To teach Christ and to oversee the joy of his people and to draw them back in and point them back into the scripture alone to submit and obey to the instructions of God from the apostles so that our joy may be complete and that God's promises may be fulfilled. Now that's what we've been learning. That's what I've I've always taught. And so, there's a huge, huge problem, isn't there? Genesis has opened up some cans of worms for people. I mean, there have been some people who have just gotten their feathers ruffled because I don't teach Genesis biologically. It's not written that way. If it was written that way, then Moses would have understood DNA. Moses would have understood the genus of species. It's not the point. Can we see all that and go, wow, look at there, God's amazing. Sure, but we want to see what the Scripture's teaching. And the Scripture here in the short and broad narratives that we've seen already is that God created Eden out of nothing, the world out of nothing. From death, darkness, and chaos came life with God. God created man, Distinct from other things, and then from man who was alone and helpless, he gave Eve out of himself. This is a picture of Christ, one flesh, marriage is one flesh. Then the fall. Why is the fall necessary? Because it is the point of the gospel promise. The good report of God as the one who is the only one who has the power and the promises and the provisions to create and sustain and establish righteousness in life, He is the one who purposed the fall. He is the one who decreed the fall. God didn't intend on Adam not eating the fruit. He intended on Adam to eat the fruit, yet He commanded him not to. And Adam, in his free decision to listen to not God but to his own flesh, well, I thought it was Eve. His own flesh, so listen to himself, the two are one, fell. Failed. Because that is what God is showing in creation. He alone can do the work, he alone can sustain it. He alone can preserve it. And that anything that is created, if it gives any effort whatsoever to sustenance of life or to salvation, you will fail. So what happens? The gospel, the fall that brings the gospel promise is the example of that we see in the destruction, the division, the flesh of desire, the unruly humanity. And then we all of a sudden we're going to see it all the way up through the end of chapter 11 and then we're going to see God destroy the earth and He's going to save eight people and He's going to have Noah build a boat for a century that will only house and provide for eight people. So the preaching of Noah was like, get on the boat or die, get on the boat or die, get on the boat or die. What would have happened if 100,000 people had come to him and said, I'm here. Oh. It wasn't God's intention to save the world. It was God's intention to save his eight people. That story used to horrify me as a child. And I remember crying over... My grandmother's dramatic reading of that text in, in, in Genesis. And then she would say it with just her perfect grammar. And she was a journalist for a while and some other, and she'd say, And then God shut the door. And the rains came. I'm like, You know, she should have been Darth Vader's voice. She's very good. And I would just weep. Why? 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 Why didn't they get on the boat? And the answer was typically because they hated God's provisions. And there wasn't any room. (laughs) There was no room on the boat, son. But they didn't want to get on there anyway. See, the Scriptures are showing us God's power. Genesis 1 through 4 specifically are outlining the entirety, uh, 1 through 3 are outlining the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch. But yet we've been taught as Americans to just story after story after story after story. You know what? I want my child to be like Joseph. I want my child to be like David. I want to be like this. I want to be like that. I want to, and we speculate, we assume, and we establish our own righteousness by affecting some, some instruction. Now, is it bad to say, hey, look what Joseph did? Not really, but it's bad to say, why don't you do likewise? It's just like the knuckleheads around the world today who feel like they have the authority and the right to cause havoc amongst the church and to call out every known sin that's ever been done when Jesus Himself says, do not call out one sin from any person whatsoever in the freedom of all the universe until you get the tree out of your own eye. What does that mean? Until you are sinless, don't say a word. I don't care what the sin is. Church discipline, which is... Correction is the only instrument that God established to correct people in their sin. And the point of it is restoration. I am sorry for what I did. Then you are forgiven. Hallelujah. Let's have a party. That is it. There is You don't get recompense in correction. I mean, if your arm's broken, they don't break it the other way. Well, you broke your arm, dummy. Give me the other one. (coughs) And every time it heals, they break it again? No. They bond it up, they set the bones, put it back as close as they can to the original place, hold it tight, care for it, so it can heal. That's what we do when people fall into sin in the church. And ultimately, the promises of God in the Bible, especially here in Genesis, is to show this, that, that, that Abraham, who was now a, the prodigy, I'm not the progeny, the progeny of, 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 you know, the lines here of sinners is worshiping idols, yet God deals differently with Abraham than He did with any other idol worshiper. What did He do with other idol worshippers? He destroyed them. Now here's Abraham and God says, that's my man, I'm going to call him out. That's my child, I'm going to call him out. And he gave Abraham the same promise he gave Adam and Eve. And he's talked about the seed of a woman. He talked about the seed. He talked about the son of promise. The unconditional hope. The finished work of God and redemption. And ultimately it boils down to the seventh day which is never going to end. The Sabbath. That's why we're here. For Sabbath rest. That's why we're here. This is not the seventh day. This is the first day, by the way. The calendar starts on Sunday, goes to Friday, goes to Saturday, <laughs> Saturday, Sabbath. The point of the Old Testament scriptures is to show the pattern of the promises of God and the purpose of God for the, by the power of God for the people of God, period. There's a bunch of Ps there. It just comes naturally, I'm sorry. Any person with a cognitive mind can read the Bible and see the story. and can see the pattern. A lot of academic friends of mine can see the pattern, but the loss is a ball and eye weeds. The loss is a goat on the side of a mountain. They cannot tell you what it means, but they know the pattern. They know the theology. They know the doctrine. They understand election. They have all sorts of knowledge and emphasis and, and, and understanding of all these things, beloved, but if they're not resting in the promises of God, they've not been born again. To hear me. A testimony is one thing, but saving faith is the fruit of it. Sealing of the Holy Spirit is that, you know what? I might not get it all, or I might know it all, but it doesn't matter what I know, and it doesn't matter what I've got. I know Christ. According to the Scripture, He saved His people. And I know that I'm safe. self-righteous people will say, that's not enough. That's okay to say, well, can you go a little further? What do you mean? Well, the Scripture will tell us what we mean when we say what we say. And we'll believe the Scripture according to its teaching because the Spirit of God in us will cause us to have a hope and have understanding and resolve, even if we have to say in our flesh, when I've had many people say, I don't like that, but I cannot deny it is true. The full counsel of the Word of God is to believe the truth concerning God and do the things commanded by God. That both are equally established for His people. So if I say I believe the gospel but I refuse the instruction, I'm not believing the gospel. Abraham was a prime example of that, wasn't it? Abraham believed God, and God credited that faith as righteousness. But how many times was Abraham unfaithful? So it's not our faithfulness nor our obedience that establishes up before the Father. It's Christ's faithfulness. It's His obedience. It's His death. It's His life. It's His resurrection. It's the atonement for the people of God. This is the good report. This is the gospel. Believing the gospel is not an intellectual exercise it is a divine power it is not about i mean i can argue the logic of the arguments of the new testament narratives and the new or the new testament teachings and anyone with a logical mind can agree or disagree it doesn't mean that they believe so we're always going back to the sabbath as we get here in chapter 3, we see the curse. We see that Scripture teaches us that God has cursed the ground. God has cursed parenting. God has cursed work. So we we'll revisit the curse real quick as we move into chapter 4 today. Labor pain is the suffering and grief of childbearing, including childbirth, including what? Child-rearing. Uh, childbearing and the provisions thereof. We see that the desire shall be contrary to your husband or for your husband and your husband shall rule over. These are both negatives. They are both results of curses. You'll want to run your husband and your husband's going to want to run you. The husband doesn't give a positive That's not positive in the context of teaching. That's negative. You want to be in charge and he wants to be in charge. Guess what? Neither of us are in charge. We're one flesh. How are we in charge of ourselves? I did get a positive email or a positive report on that sermon. A lot of wives enjoyed that sermon. But yet, that's not what the culture says. That's not what history says. I don't care what history says. I don't care what any dead man has ever had to say about anything they've ever read in the Bible. I really could care less. If I cared less, I'd go to sleep. But I care when other people tangle the church up in these things to the point that historically now for a hundred years we treat each other differently based on some authority we think God has given some gender. Oh, that's a liberal out there. No, it's not. That's hyper-conservationists. That's exegetical realities. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Shut your mouth and die. That's what Jesus did. He shut His mouth and died. I don't want to oversimplify it, but that's what He did. Husbands, love your wife as the church, as Christ loved the church. What do these negative things deal with? Marital conflict of authority. Both are negative results of sin, revealing the, the death of the picture of relationships. Sin broke the relationship between man and God. Sin broke the relationship between husband and wife. Sin broke the relationship between parent and child. Sin, as we're going to see in just a second, breaks the relationship between brothers. And sin has been breaking the relationships between the body of Christ since the very first day. God has promised reconciliation, even temporally, if we submit to His promises. When we see reconciliation not take place, it's because somebody's refusing to be where they need to be and hear what they need to hear and do what they need to do. And that is seen in marriage, that is seen in business, that is seen in the body. And we're all experiencing that. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Work. The man is now the slave to the dirt. Instead of the dirt being a slave to the man, he was going to rule the earth, but now the earth rules him. Now to the text. Genesis chapter 4. Well, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Let that ring in your ears for a minute. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothing. We understand that. We've already taught this. It just needs to be in our hearts and minds when we get to chapter 4. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife. I'm going to read this slowly. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have acquired a man, and I'm going to correct this translation, who is Redeemer, the Lord. I don't understand that. Why we've, With the help of the Lord. That sounds just like the Pharisee. Well, she's had the same attitude. I'll show you. I have obtained a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground, just like his father. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first fruits of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel, and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. The same language that God said for the man and wife, Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I I supposed to keep up with my brother? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. But behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And I'm just going to stop right there. Because that's the conclusion of that thought. The segue of these things. Adam knew his wife. Beloved, the whole idea of foreknowledge, the idea of knowing, the idea of knowledge in the Old and New Testament has everything to do with love. And in this sense, in a practical way, it has everything to do with conception. (laughs) We'll leave it there. They became one flesh, and she conceived and bore Cain. And then she says, I've gotten a man. With the help of the Lord, says so many translations. So here is the giver of all life, which is her namesake. And now she thinks she's able to preserve life. You know, the Lord told me that through my seed, the serpent would be crushed. Here it is! Look what I've done! With the help of the Lord. But I will tell you that just in a little deeper study of both the Greek and the Hebrew, not that it matters... But it was conflicting to me. What is it that Eve is trying to say here? She doesn't say the Lord has given. She is saying, I have made. I have made. I have given. The help of God is not in the original text. That's what we call translational imposition. In other words, what we think it means, we're going to write that down. It's better to have it be odd and we go down and study the context and figure out what it is. Eve is saying, this is the one who will preserve life and restore life. Here he is. Look, I have beheld, I have brought forth my seed. Here is my deliverer. But boy, was she wrong. She had not birthed the Christ, she had birthed a murderer. I often think about that in some of my crazy interests when I read about serial killers and things of like that. The mother that was always on my mind. What did I do wrong? Nothing. Nothing. This man who she called the Redeemer, the Lord, was supposed to be the crusher of the serpent in her mind, but he was not. He's the one who hated God. And verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. They weren't twins. They weren't born at the same time. It's just saying she had a son named Cain, and then later she had a son named Abel. And these boys had become men responsible for their own harvests, responsible for their own livelihood, responsible for their own families and they were working. Abel kept sheep. Cain worked the ground like his father. They both worked. Labor is necessary for food and life. And then, it must continue. We must continue to labor. We must continue to produce. We must continue to have wealth that we might eat and live. And while there are distinctions made between the work and the offerings, which we'll talk about, the ground and the blood, and etc., the whole idea here is to understand God's separation, God's working His purposes in the picture and the story of Cain and Abel, showing His promises. Beloved, we are not promised that all people will come to see Christ. But we are promised that all who belong to Him will never be cast away. And some of us who are middle-aged and older may not see the salvation in a temporal sense of our loved ones. But we will see it in an eternal sense. If it be the will of the Lord. So, worship. These two boys worship. As Paul would say, worship is the manner of life we live. We give our lives as an offering to the Lord. We give our hearts and thoughts. But these offerings are not what makes us acceptable. Whether or not we're acceptable makes our offerings acceptable. And in verse 3 it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now see here, we have this... In the course of time, we don't know how much time, mean, they were obviously men. They weren't six-year-olds out there slaying stuff. And I mean, you just don't think too hard in it. These men were responsible for their own livelihood, were responsible for their own food, working together in families, in a familial way. And Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. I want you to think about this for a second. Notice the perfection of Cain's labor. Cain worked hard and worked against the curse to produce fruit and vegetation in order to produce a great bounty of which he took some of and brought it to the Lord in splendor. This life-giving food, a harvest, that actually reveals God's glory, does it not, in Romans 1? That the creation reveals God's glory? Does not the vegetation, the trees, and the birds, and everything else reveal God's glory? Psalm, the psalmist would say, the handiwork, the work of your hands. Yet the fruit of man's labor, even by God's providence, never produces life. I want you to hear this. The picture here is for us to see that even though Cain worked hard and did well, and produced from God's providential care great harvest that would feed him and his family and offered it as a sacrifice, the work of man, the work of man's hands, the work of man's ministry, the work of man's wisdom, the work of man's intelligence, the work of man's understanding, the work of man's trying and striving and hoping and desiring and affection and worship will not produce life. Nothing we do in any way produces life eternal. It is God alone who can do that. And to God, man's worship and wisdom are not impressive. I remember when I first started studying church history and historical theology. It is a separate subject altogether than Scripture. Though it has the same subject matter, it's not the same subject. To study the Bible is to study the Bible. To study my thoughts on the Bible is to study James. Tippins. To study my philosophy is to study my thoughts. This is what it means. And my thoughts could agree, but if you want to learn the Bible, read the Bible. Study the scriptures. Test what I'm saying by the word and where I sit. That sits before you. We have it right here. And I used to think, man, I bet, gosh, what it would have been like to just. Have that kind of mind. What it would have been like to be able to be alive in in those days. What it would have been like for God to have granted me that type of understanding so that just gospel truth could have been just expanded more and more and more and more. So impressive. I remember saying that one time. This is so impressive. These people wrote thousands of thousands of thousands of pages of stuff about one verse. So impressive. It's not impressive. It's not impressive. It's not Im- our knowledge is not impressive to God. And you might think, well, you where, where are you getting that? First Corinthians chapter one, number one. I and mean, we can see it everywhere. He's not impressed. He's not impressed by my way. He's not impressed by my preaching. He's not impressed by, by my dedication to the ministry. He's not impressed by our clarity. He's not impressed by our em- emphasis or our zeal. He's not impressed by us. God is not impressed by His creation. He made us. I mean, he didn't, God didn't go into a trance and wake up with stuff and creatures and go, wow, look at me. I didn't know I could do this. What a God I am. I picked the right title because I am the highest of all things if I can do this. Wow. Wow. That's not the God of Scripture. God wasn't impressed with our religion. God doesn't want anything we have. Nothing can a man bring to God. Nothing is acceptable outside of God's promises and provision of life. And then Abel, verse 4, did the same thing. He brought of His work the firstborn of his flock, and their fat portions. Now that has significance, and I don't want to bog down on it, but it does have significance in the Old Testament itself. And if the fat portions are the prime meat, we know that the firstborn is a representation of Messiah, of the firstfruits. So now here, while Abel provided an offering of his work, his work was different because it pointed to something else theologically. It pointed to something else prophetically. He had no idea. It wasn't like Cain should have gone to his brother and said, Hey man, can I get a lamb so I can sacrifice a lamb and give to the Lord? That's acceptable worship. No, Abel's worship wasn't, I mean Cain's worship wasn't acceptable because Cain wasn't acceptable. But yet in the story here, the reason the Lord parsed it out this way and purposed it this way is so that He could show once again the very thing that He's already promised. Only through death can life exist. And only through the death of the firstborn, the only Son of God. This points to the shed blood of of Christ, the promise of God, the shadow of the seed of the woman that Eve thought was Cain. That Sarah thought Ishmael would be. That Joseph's brothers, who knows what they were thinking. Both acts of worship were grand. Both, both acts of worship, I think, were Sincere. But for one, it was humanistic and the other was prophetic. The firstborn in its worth and its taste and its savory portion is to taste and see that the Lord's promises are good. Neither of these offerings made the giver pleasing before the Lord. And this is where many expositors part ways. They put the emphasis on the person offering rather than the one receiving. God is not swayed by our worship. He loves us or He doesn't. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now I want you to know what the opposite of love is. You know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. So did God, was God indifferent to Cain? I would say that even God hated Cain's offering. Why? Because it wasn't righteous. Is Cain reprobate? We don't know. This is, not, this is, a, this is a temporary situation here on the earth. It, it, does, it has spiritual points and spiritual prophetic purposes, but the scripture hasn't taught us the eternal destiny of either of these men. But it points to the picture. The Lord chose here. The Lord divided here. The Lord separated here. He chose to picture election. He chose to reveal His promises again. He chose to show the counsel of His own will, and He does not disclose how and why, except that He shows it. God is not desiring anything except what He does. God does not desire the salvation of every human being in the world, because if He did... He would produce it. Beloved, I want you to hear that. Proclaiming the finished work of Jesus Christ for the elect of God is a declaration of God's promises to His people. And all manner of things go into our hearts and minds when we try to effect it to ourselves. His choice, His will, His acceptable redemption. See, man's reaction to the Lord's grace without conversion is always self-help. It's always, what else can I do? Or let me work harder or let me do more. It's always self-discovery. Without being converted, without being born of the Spirit... We're not sitting still resting. We're exercising our will and volition in an attempt to try to work out our salvation in a way that's not trusting in Him who is faithful. As Paul would say. Man's reaction to the Lord's grace without conversion is self-help, self-discovery, intelligence, opulence. We love to make it grand for God, don't we? We come in. I want everybody to be very, very quiet. Shh. Shh. Light the candle. Dim the lights. Cue the fog. It's like the Holy Spirit. And that's funny, but it's what we do. We don't, you know what? We got. To, I mean, how many times have you heard people say, oh, "You know, the Lord was really there," because of the environment? If the Lord shows up, it's going to be a tempest, not a treat. It's going to be a trick. Religion. And I'm not talking about the discipline of submitting to the Word and the discipline of being in the assembly as a command, the discipline of having to understand the wisdom of God, the discipline that if we ignore any of those things, God will not hear our prayers, much less answer them. He will not answer them. He will not hear them. If we don't obey the simple things about what we should be doing, where we should be, and how we should be relating to each other, He will not hear our prayers. He will not answer them. Because that is <laughs> to ignore God's promises. Oh, I love the Lord and I'm going to show Him in my grand way. I'm going I'm to create all this lifestyle. I'm going to have the bumper stickers and the devotions books and the Bible studies and, and, and all this stuff and the prayer vigils and everything. And I don't really like so and so. Well, good, good luck with that. Good luck with that. It's a moot point. But that's what we do. And eventually all this stuff combined, if we put one label on it, it's called rebellion. And then what happens when we get caught out in our rebellion, in our fleshliness, we get angry. We get angry. And then the Lord asks, in verse 6, He says, Why are you angry? Why is your face falling?" And beloved, you've got to be careful with this text. You can know what a man thinks about what the gospel is by how he preaches this text. If you do well, will you not be accepted? How much better could he be? What does Jesus say concerning the Pharisees in the context of His ministry there in the gospels, and the synoptics? When He's talking to the crowds and they're listening to Jesus teach the scripture... And all these people are just longing to know how it is that they can become acceptable to God. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees whose livable morality and righteousness, and they weren't all charlatans, folks. Self-righteous people sometimes are charlatans, but a lot of times they're just helpless, blind, and deceived. Thinking they're spiritual. Nicodemus was not a haughty man. He was a very concerned man. He was a very caring man, but he was unconverted. And he thought that all that he could do was just to worship and to study and to pray and to sacrifice and serve in the temple and that one day God would come down and he would be found worthy of the presence of God through his submission. That's not holiness. It is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness most of the time, 99% of the time, self-righteousness is enveloped in this great, Piety and humility and often tears. Most self-righteous people weep over the things of God because they don't know anything else to do but weep. Hoping that at the last moment that my sadness, that my burden would appease God's wrath. And they don't see it. Thank Him. Praise Him. Tears of joy. But none of these make us acceptable. Cain got angry. He says, if you do well, won't you be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching outside your door. And every time you walk out into the world, it is going to come after you and you must rule over it. Now there's a lot here and I don't have time to answer all of this. But God is asking a question to Cain that he cannot answer. This is not a request for Cain to change his method of sacrifice or change his offering. This is not a request for, for Cain to change his worship that God would accept him. Yet, it is just a gospel proclamation. Let's put it in Jesus' words in the New Testament All who are labor, all who are weary, come to me. All who are thirsty, drink. All who are hungry, eat. I am the bread of life. What must we be doing to do the works of God? This is the work of God. That you believe on the Son whom He has sent. That you rest in the promise of God's. Commentators cannot keep straight this stuff. Because they reduce this narrative to an ideology about Cain's part and choices. And if he just straightened himself out, he'd be acceptable to God. Which is Antichrist. Sin is crouching at the door of Cain. Because he was doing the right thing without faith. Obedience to the gospel is believing Believing is sitting still, motionless, powerless, effortlessly in the hand of Christ who carries us out, who snatches us out of darkness, who snatches us and draws us with great force, forcibly, against our will and against our nature and against our countenance, against our cognition. And He holds us and He embraces us like a a python would crush its prey. Christ reaches around and grabs us and holds us and squeezes the very flesh life out of us. And in that holding, He gets on the cross and as He dies, we die. And as He is raised, we are raised. And we no longer squirm. We don't try to wipe His face or wash His feet. Because we can't. This is Faith. And it's God's work. This is not something man can muster. Free will and choices and decisions and propositions and all these other... Oh, if I could pick up this podium. These are the evils of the serpent who is always looking to devour God's little lamb. Faith is God's doing because it rests in God's doing who finished redemption as He promised in the first place. And doing well is resting by faith in the power and the promises of God. Resting is a work of God. As long as someone is effectually conditioning their rest on anything that's in themselves, in their mind, in their understanding, in their thinking, in their knowledge, in their actions, in their doctrine, in their transformation, they are not resting, trusting, living by faith in Jesus Christ. And God says that is not doing well. It's idolatry. God is not in the business of supernaturally bestowing information into the brains of people. He's in the business of redeeming His people by the Spirit, giving them faith as they hear the words of Christ. Not to become scholars and experts in their grasp of all these things and all the outside possibilities of their intentions, but to simply sit and savor the glories of our Lord. People call that easy believism, I call it salvation. Yeah, but! A yeah, but is a bullish sheep. Stop it. Get here, and then as brothers and sisters, we can talk about and clarify and clean up anything else. I believe there's an idolatry of salvation. I've said this a thousand times if I've said it once. People have a love affair with their salvation experience, and most people think when they read the right doctrinal books and came to an understanding that they were born again. You're not born again... Reading history and the labels that we carry are no more impressive to God than the glasses on my face. The very fact that I wear these shows that I'm a sinner in many ways because my eyes are decaying and they cost way too much money. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I could have fed my family for a month. For what glasses cost? It's progression. What does that mean? Indebtedness? Labels are easily placed. and People can feel comfortable with them and sometimes they're necessary and they're not evil, but we need to know what everyone is saying. So let us know the truth so that the error may be made clear as Scripture reveals it and establishes by the power of God. But I'm here to say to you, beloved, in addition to that, is that I think most of the labels we carry are Erroneous. Because they don't display the simplicity of God's power. Cain and Abel had the exact same information. What was that information? The promise of the gospel. God will save us from this serpent's mess through the seed of my mama. So maybe Cain thought he was something special. Maybe your brother. He did give us some clothes until then. That's about what they knew. But the Sabbath rest is God placing them in the garden. Making them from nothing. Breathing into them life and putting them in the garden. That's what regeneration is. That God in His Spirit made you out of death, breathed into you the life of Christ and put you in the garden. He placed you into Christ. Christ is the garden. And Christ... Life and righteousness is counted as your own, though it is not your own. It is not ours, beloved. It's imputed to us. But just like the serpent came around testing Eve and testing Adam, there's a lot of fruit police out there in the world, evil serpents looking to devour those who are not quite like them, who, in their own eyes, are just like God. Cain spoke to his brother. What happened? Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Now I want you you to picture this for a second. The scripture there is showing us that that Cain went out and had a conversation like he always, Hey Abel, what's up man? Hey, How's your day going? It's good to see you. Come out here for a minute. Let's go walk. Let's go to the range. Let's go have a coffee. Pow! Knocked him in the head and killed him. Cut his throat. I don't know what he did. He might have insulted him to death and he just died. I don't know what he did, but he struck his brother and he killed him. He rose up and killed him. This is Cain's response to the gospel. If you believe in me, you'll do well. If you do right, if you rest in me, you'll do well. What does Cain do? I hate my brother. I'm going to go get him. Cain's response to the command to do right is to kill the righteous. To kill the right one. Cain lured his brother out to kill him and Cain spoke to him as a brother and then turned on him. He used familial intimacy as a moniker to his suspicion to lure his brother into a place where he could get rid of him. To get him out of the way. And that even maybe then, he wouldn't have to deal with the fact that his offering was a lesser offering. Because I think in the mind of Cain, his offering was greater. And Paul tells us why, doesn't he? John tells us why also. John says, don't be like Cain and murder your brother. And why did Cain murder his brother? Because his acts were evil and Cain's acts were righteous. So the question I have to myself often, and I've confessed this to you, and I'll continue to do it, is, am I a murderer? And the answer to that is yes, I am a murderer. You are murderers as well, beloved. I've never struck a man to the point of death, but, oh, I've struck a man. (laughs) And I really wanted to strike a man to the point of death. And to say that you haven't means you haven't related to a lot of people. When someone's in your face and they're spitting in your face and they're poking you in the chest and they're bruising you, it doesn't matter when the flesh rises up. But I started thinking, do I hate? Do I despise? Do I consider other people lesser than me? Do I consider other believers a lesser believer because of their ignorance or their sin? Do I listen to the testimony of others About other people? Do I condition God's work for other people's salvation by what I hear or what I see or what I know or what I think I know? Do I speak of others in ways that diminishes the love of Christ for them? You know, when we murder each other and we speak in ways that are murderous, that means anything that's not edifying outside the presence of that person is murder. There is no warrant in the entirety of the Scripture that gives us the privilege to speak about anyone who is not present in the hearing of what we say if it is not positive. Got to warn them though, no you don't, you don't have that warrant. You do not have that warrant. Because to do that is to drag the Lord Jesus into the mire and to spit in His face. And to say, well, that's not my brother, so he's not in Christ, is to pass judgment on a man that you don't know could be the the sheep of Christ. And pagans treat their enemies better than that. I don't have to listen to that because that person's not telling the truth about such and such. It doesn't matter. If a cat meows this instruction, we obey the cat. Because we're not obeying the cat, we're obeying Christ. When we belittle or malign even if it's true any sibling in Christ we are literally spitting in Christ's face destroying his very name and because we are found in him we destroy our very name murderers hate truth and our flesh hates the truth when when we're confronted with it sometimes then murderers question God's message and messenger and word and prescription and promises in verse 9 look here and then the lord said to Cain where is abel your brother God didn't have to ask the question because he already knew where he was. He knows all things. And then he came like a smart aleck. How am I supposed to know? Am I supposed to keep up with my brother? Am I his babysitter? Could you imagine saying that to your mama? They'd call me toothless tippins if I had said that to my mama. No brain damage (laughs) to No way. Saying it to God, it's hubris. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I'm going to talk more about that in depth next week. But the heart of the murderer here in this text is indifferent to God's Word. The heart of the murderer is indifferent to life. The heart of the murderer is indifferent to God's prescription of redemption and reconciliation and joy and life and hope and happiness and order. The heart of the man in its flesh cries out to question God and then to lie to Him through the questions. God questions Cain and Abel's blood reveals the answer to the question. It cries out from the grave for justice which is the opposite of grace, of mercy. God knows Abel, loves Abel, approves of Abel, and will vindicate Abel, his beloved child, just as he vindicated his beloved son. And the heart of a murderer basically establishes a new law by which God speaks and forsakes the clarity of what is already spoken on the claim of conscience see Cain and his conscience was justified in what he was doing why because that's what the heart does the heart is exceedingly wicked and deceitful beloved we cannot claim conscience when the bible actually tells us to do the exact opposite respect your parents Well, I've got a reason not to respect my parents because X, Y, Z. Love your spouse. Well, you don't know who I live with. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do this. Do that. Honor this. Serve that. We don't get to choose how we listen to the Scripture. We're going to choose how we filter God's Word and decide, well, my conscience doesn't bear witness that I should not be in assembly, yet the Bible commands you to. The Bible commands you not to leave your spouse, no matter what you may feel, like you wish you had done something different, and so on and so forth. Instead of establishing a new law. So there's a test of the conscience. Does God's word permit what I am doing, or going to do, or thinking, or wanting to think about what I am burdened with? No, then it cannot be done. Beloved, people literally offer murder to God as sacrifice, thinking that He's pleased with it. But God will not be mocked. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm doing the Lord's work, but actually we're murdering And now you are cursed from the ground, verse 11, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer give you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. Or this curse deserves more time than I have for it today. But the earth will be a part of God's discipline to Cain and punishment. It will not feed him anymore. Cain will also be alone. There will be no family for him, no land for him, no security for him, no life of intimacy. Cain will be fearful throughout his entire life, which is anti-gospel, against the mind of Christ, which is the mind of peace. Cain will be suspicious of all those around him and always on the lookout for those that are trying to do him harm. Yet in God's providence, as a part of God's punishment, God would not permit someone else to kill him. Listen to that. Part of God's punishment is that God would not permit someone else to kill him. Why? Why not just let him have his way? Because God's purpose of redemption has nothing to do with Cain. It has everything to do with Christ. The saints, even when dispersed, are at peace, but not for Cain. This is a picture of being out of Eden, out of the presence of God. And further, no work and no desire and nothing you do will ever afford an agreement with God, a place of rest, or a fruitful yield. Rebelling against God's promises is death. And all these pictures point to the dreadful state of the loss for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Cain said, this is too much for me to bear. It's too much. I can't. I can't do this. You've driven me today away from the ground. and your face, I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord says, nope. Anyone who kills Cain, I'll take vengeance on them sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that those who saw him would not attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then the scripture says what? Cain had a son named Enoch. This is why Cain did not die. This is the gospel again. Not for Cain's sake, but for God's sake. For God's peoples. Why did God keep him alive? Well, it's the providential care of Cain because of the elect. Through Cain shall come Enoch. Through Enoch shall, become, shall come Methuselah. Through Methuselah shall become Lamech, then Noah. If he killed Cain, then God's purposes in Cain would have been finished. But God's purposes in Cain was to redeem the world in the picture of Christ in the flood. It wasn't about Cain. But we did read out of the Psalms today, you know, people cry out for mercy, God gives mercy, even if it's temporally. Because in that state, even in the flesh, it's a, it's a, it's a, a plea of sanity, if you will, <laughs> I can't do this, I need your help. God is filling the earth with His elect children and with the reprobate and how He does that is His business and His plan. But He's clearly shown this division here. The reprobate eat of the portions of God's kindness in order that the promise of Messiah would come. Messiah came through lines of reprobate people. How many times have you seen pagan families unbelieving generation after generation and all of a sudden out of nowhere comes this gospel heralder? It's not about bloodlines, it's about God saving His people. The judgment of the reprobate is certain, like the promises of God for the elect are certain. Judgment is certain for them, salvation is certain for the elect... So, beloved, we are to rest and to rejoice in the promises of God who in this text shows us that He authors everything perfectly on the earth for His glory and for the joy of His people. How and why? Because Christ has satisfied all things necessary for salvation in His body and in His blood. Let's prepare our hearts to take the table together in that reality. Father, we thank You for this truth, for the Gospel. Lord, for the peace that comes. Lord, to to put away the flesh and to stop trying to work so hard. Lord, we desperately need continually prayer and encouragement from each other and ministry and Your Word to be trained, to be taught, so that we may be full and we may be fruitful. Not by our efforts, nor our desires, nor our affections, nor our transformative things, but Father, by Your power and promise alone. For it is the gospel of Christ. In whose name we pray, Amen. Let's prepare our hearts.